Welcome to Moving Upstream, a podcast by Prevention Institute in Oakland, California. Each episode, we look closely at a health or equity issue in the news to understand how we got here and to find a healthier, more equitable way forward. Today, we're talking about masculinity and health. I'm joined by Cody Raganese from Promundo. Promundo is an international organization that works to prevent violence by engaging men and boys in partnership with women and girls. They just released a report about how masculine norms affect the physical and mental health of men and boys, and ultimately, entire communities. We think a lot about these questions at Prevention Institute, where we support an initiative called Making Connections. Making Connections is about improving the mental health and well-being of men and boys by focusing on community conditions, and masculine norms are always part of this conversation. Welcome, Cody. Thanks, Ruben. Happy to be here. Um, very excited for today's conversation. We're really looking forward to it, too. Just to start out, can you give us a quick overview of what Promundo does? Promundo was originally started in Brazil by our president and CEO, Gary Barker. And now, after 20, 21 years of operations, we are now um, in many countries around the world and have offices still in Brazil, in Washington, D.C., as well as Eastern DRC, Democratic Republic of Congo. And the organization, like you rightly said, promotes gender equality and, and violence reduction through engaging boys and men in partnership with women and girls. And I think programmatically, one of the great things about Promundo is it uses its own research to inform its programming. So it uses evidence-based interventions and, and methodologies to engage boys and men around the world in different gender equality programming. And we've definitely found a lot of the research you all have done really helpful in the work that we do here at Prevention Institute. Cody, can you tell us a little bit about some of the research and programs that are coming out of Promundo? So I think we're most well known for our research called IMAGES, which is the International Men and Gender Equality Survey. That has been conducted in over 40 countries and really gives a great snapshot of gender equality attitudes and practices within a specific country context. Additionally, we've in the past couple of years started to release studies and papers about Manbox, which I hope to talk about later as it you know, really relates to the study as well. And then in terms of programs, we've been working across the globe for a number of years on different gender transformative programs like Program P, which engages men to be involved fathers and caregivers, and also Manhood 2.0, which is our most recent one, being launched in D.C., Pittsburgh, and New York City, engaging high school and middle school boys in gender equality. Thanks for sharing that. You recently released a report called Masculine Norms and Men's Health, Making the Connections. Can you talk a little bit about some of the key findings in that report? As you mentioned, the report is entitled Masculine Norms in Men's Health, Making the Connections. And, uh, you know, I think we attempt to do just that, which is outline the many linkages between hegemonic masculine norms um, and global health outcomes for males. And the takeaway message is quite clear. It's that a common subset of masculine norms 
that men hold around the world act as a driving force in men's ill health. We analyzed the 2016 global burden of disease data for the leading causes of male morbidity and mortality globally. In addition to living six years fewer than men, we also found that men experience higher rates of mortality in 19 of the top 22 causes of death globally. What we were able to do with this database is identify seven health risk behaviors that are attributable to 50% of male deaths and 70% of male morbidity. And so that's poor diet, tobacco use, alcohol use, drug use, unsafe sex, occupational hazards, and limited health-seeking behaviors. To anyone in this field or listening, I'm sure you probably expected most of these. But the data is so clear that in every region of the world, men engage in these behaviors at far greater rates than women. And so we kind of asked ourselves, why, why do you think that is? We synthesized reports and articles and journals on, on the topic, and we were able to conclude that the initiation and continued engagement in these behaviors is central to the way that men see their own masculinity and, and manhood. And so, in short, these norms like emotional control, self-sufficiency, power, aggression, and hypersexuality, they largely contribute to the way that men behave and in turn lead to poor health outcomes. I'd like to just rewind a little bit. You started to clarify this toward the end of your response there, but I wanted to ask you to explain a little bit more about what you mean by hegemonic masculine norms across the globe. Yeah, I feel like we use a lot of jargon and technical language, but at the base of it, it is these social norms or ways that men and boys are socialized. And we, we all know the phrase man up, be a man, all of those kind of form this idea of a particular way in which men and boys must behave and be. And so that's basically what we're talking about when we're talking about masculine norms. Hegemonic is just kind of the, the word for overall the most powerful. And so that's the contextual framework in which we worked is identifying very persistent norms and qualities of men that impact their health. Thanks for explaining that a little bit more for yeah. our listeners who might not be as familiar with the with that terminology. Can you tell us a little bit more about um, the man box that you mentioned? Yeah, and and this ties very well into your last question about about hegemonic masculine norms. Basically it's all rooted in this idea of social norms that focus on gender and masculinities. And so this concept of a man box was actually created by a man named Paul Keeble with Oakland's Good Men Project um, in California. We have adapted that idea um, as ProMundo. And in 2016, we conducted a study in Mexico, the U.S., and the U.K., in terms of identifying how prevalent this man box is. The man box has different pillars in it, qualities of men that are most common. 
I can go through the seven pillars that we identified as Promundo, as kind of the Achilles heel of, of men. The first one is self-sufficiency and emotional control. This is, you know, the widespread social expectation that, you know, men can't rely on anyone and, or talk about their feelings and real men don't cry. Basically, that's the phrase for that one. The second is acting tough and risk-taking. This really kind of portrays in man's toughness to be seen with physical strength and invincibility and being willing to take risks, even if they're not so logical <laughs> um, and, and kind of doing everything to the max. The third one is attractiveness. That one is really rooted in the idea that male physical appearance, body image, and attractiveness matters to a lot of men, and, and they will act in certain ways to make sure that this is shown. And this can be to attract others uh, in terms of boyfriends or girlfriends, or just to, be, to seem cool in their peer group. So it has a lot to do with social image. The fourth is rigid masculine gender roles. And so this one, I think, is the most common one in the literature. And it's basically that men are meant to do certain tasks and women are, are meant to do other tasks. The division of labor and division of roles, like changing a diaper or caring for a child, doing dishes, those kinds of things, setting those roles in a concrete way um, is part of the man box. The fifth is called superiority among males. And so this is simply put as being the alpha male, making sure that in a group of other males, you come out on top and will do basically anything to make sure that happens, including a lot of risky behavior. The sixth is hypersexuality. Hypersexuality emphasizes that not only should, should men be straight cisgender males, but also kind of this idea of a sexual conquest um, and desire for sexual interaction at all times in their lives. And the seventh and last one is power, aggression, and control. This really is at the root of gender-based violence, harassment, stalking, and, and a whole bunch of other behaviors, but it emphasizes the need uh, for men to be physically, emotionally, and financially in control over other women or other males that they might surround themselves with. Just to finish this thought about the man box study that we did in 2016, we were able to measure that in these three countries, Mexico, the U.S., and the U.K., that about 50% of males perceived that society thinks that men should aspire to be a specific way. And a high percentage of these males also found to have internalized these traits and these norms. And what we were able to do is make the association between if you are in the man box or out of the man box and specific health outcomes. Those in the man box adhering to these social norms were more likely to be depressed, have suicidal thoughts, engage in binge drinking and drug abuse, 
be involved in traffic accidents, and also perpetrate violence, bullying, and sexual harassment. I see a lot of connection between what you just shared and those kinds of unhealthy masculine norms in the work that we're doing, not only with our Making Connections for Mental Health and Wellbeing Among Men and Boys initiative, but also in our work around preventing multiple forms of violence, whether it's community-level violence or intimate partner Mm -hmm. violence. How do you see some of these uh, harmful masculinities creating greater health risks, not just for those men, but for entire communities? I think one important aspect of, of engaging in men's health is really like I was mentioning before, this gender relational approach involving partners, relatives, children, spouses. What we've seen and documented in this report is that men's health and the behaviors and the social norms all impact women, children, other men, and also just society, whether that's financial costs or psychological, emotional, physical toll uh, on those around them. In the communities that you work, in the, in the households that you interact with, just making that connection between your health is also my health and his or her health affects me and, and vice versa. So I think it's a larger discussion around community health um, and population health, but also not leaving that individual out. I I do think that is important. We're really big believers at Prevention Institute that we need to have simultaneous solutions to a lot of these challenges, both at the individual level and at the community level. The report also notes that a lot of communities' policies and practices don't support men's health or don't question aspects of manhood and masculinity that then give rise to poor health. Can you talk a little bit about some of that? We do need to actively bring men and boys into the fold um, in our healthcare systems. For example, there's no U.S. men's health strategy. In fact, there's only three in the world. There's Australia, Brazil, and Ireland. Whether it's at a national level or a state or community level, I think we need to start talking about men's health and kind of what approaches have worked, what approaches haven't worked, and also start shifting the the conversation from pathologizing men for being bad at X, but also start to talk about taking an asset-based approach that'll build off the good things and the good examples that we see in our communities. I think we need to kind of turn this conversation on its head a bit to start talking about what are actions in our communities that we can build from and social norms that we can embrace that men hold? Playing off of those comments, I think the report also mentions that there are some steps that governments, institutions, corporations, and others can take to improve men's health. Do you have some examples of some of those steps or strategies that folks can take? We've included some recommendations in our report for a variety of stakeholders, not just nonprofits and civil society organizations like yourself, but we also need to be thinking of how to engage governments and academics and corporations and the private sector into this field. At the higher level, 
um, policy-wise, we would recommend building the capacity of medical and health personnel to understand masculinities and its connection to men's health. From all stages of medicine, from diagnostic to referral, treatment practices, it really needs to be integrated. And by it, I mean masculinities need to be integrated into the approach medical professionals take. For academics and research, um, there has been a lot of research already done on the topic. Our report has about 700 sources, but um, there's still some gaps. One of the things that we're really keen on is trying to widen the, the breadth of research on alternative dimensions of masculinities that are maybe a little bit less researched and that could possibly promote health behavior. Just like I was talking about before, kind of flipping it on its head to say, what's already being done uh, and what's good about men that we can build off of? For civil society organizations like yourself, really kind of taking that gender transformative programming approach and advocacy to make sure that we're working with the the right populations and in the right way. And then lastly, for corporations in the private sector and really all employers, we thought one aspect that they could really add into uh, to the field would be to provide flexible working conditions and hours comprehensive, adequate paid leave for parental leave, mm -hmm. as well as for sick days and stuff like that. All employees can really take the time to care for themselves and, and the health of their families. Cody, I just noticed that a couple of times you've mentioned masculinities and said masculinities instead of masculinity, singular. I just wanted to ask yeah. you if you could explain a little bit about why we use that term. I'm thankful that you picked up on that because that, that is really important. We've kind of shifted our language as an organization and, and kind of in the field to make sure that we acknowledge and appreciate the multiple dimensions of what it means to be a man. I think when we use the singular masculinity, it kind of puts an image in our head as to what a man should be, and it limits the possibilities. Making it plural, it really kind of opens the mind to what possibilities there are out there and how we can identify ourselves as men um, and how many people have different definitions. Now that you've explained it, I can definitely see how saying masculinities really encompasses folks like that, that we might not necessarily think of in the course of our work. Like there's a lot of mm -hmm. trans individuals who identify as right. male, but they might not be perceived in that way by a lot of folks. So. This really does kind of open that conversation up a little bit. How do you find that this research that you all have done could be useful for our partners on the ground who are implementing projects with boys and young men, whether it's around mental health and well-being or whether it's around preventing multiple forms of violence? Uh, do you have any – a couple of examples that you can share of some work that's already going on in the U.S.? Firstly, I think this provides a backdrop and the evidence – for action. A lot of times uh, we're moving and making programs with these grandiose ideas, but this report provides that hard evidence and provides also some framing ideas, a more effective way to present what we're trying to achieve in the men's health field. Thinking about how to integrate these seven risk behaviors, smoking, alcohol use, and the other five but also to 
address the root causes of these masculine norms, looking at each level, kind of the masculine norm level, how they manifest into behaviors, and then how those behaviors manifest into health outcomes. I think looking at that whole causal pathway, if you will, is, is a really important way to do our programming. So we know the end goal is, say, to reduce cardiovascular disease among men, but kind of working back, okay, what behaviors cause that? X, Y, and Z. Okay, what norms and attitudes increase the uptake of X, Y, and Z behaviors? So really kind of working more upstream in our programming to eventually arrive at cardiovascular disease or STIs or diabetes, that kind of thing. Whenever I go out and do a presentation on the work that we're doing here at PI, we use this activity called Taking Two Steps to Prevention, where mm -hmm. we basically start out with the problem or the challenge, whether it's cardiovascular disease or poor mental health, and ask people to take a step back and figure out, okay, what behaviors are causing that? And then we ask people to take another step back and figure out what is it that's causing that behavior? Sometimes it's a lot of times, actually, it's, it's norms around the way people are supposed to do things. And a lot of times it's also things in the community environment that, that impact that. So, for instance, high rates of diabetes or obesity, that happens because people have limited options around what they eat. So they end up eating things that aren't as good for them. And the reason why that ends up happening is because maybe they live in a neighborhood that's a food desert and doesn't have those kind of healthy options. So I like the way that you are kind of explaining it in the same way. Before we wrap up, I want to ask you a question around the man box. And what would a redesigned man box look like, ideally? I think that's a, it's a really interesting question to think about. And I think the, the most important point is there's no one answer. Mm -hmm. It is your authentic self and your best self. Taking the good that you have within you and working on the, the things that may be a little bit harmful to you or others. But just to give a couple examples, respect for others, Courage could also be in there, uh, but also a willingness to admit when you need help. Humility, kindness, forms of service, Boy Scouts and other organizations and activities like that. But then also kind of at a group scale, having that informal support network and, and friends. It's everything that kind of allows you to be healthy and to be a healthy influence on others. I think the redesigned man box is more of just a human box. I, you know, I think that's maybe not so gendered in the way that all of those things that I just said are also good for women, are also good for non-binary folks. So I think gender is a good lens to look at things, but at the, at the same time, it's almost limiting in a certain way so we need to kind of be careful to balance that a bit. Before we wrap up, is there anything else that you'd like to share or anything that you'd like to ask our listeners to do? The action points for me would really just be continue doing the great work that you're doing. I had a chance to speak with Ruben and a, and a couple other folks from PI about their work last year, and it's just incredible. 
I'm hoping some of the partners are, are listening as well and just continue doing the work you're doing and, and always look at ways that you can be improving um, and reaching more men and also folding in women, girls, non-binary folk into your programming because it's going to be so much more powerful when you get that community behind you. And then the other thing is try to think outside of the box and also the man box, but also kind of think creatively um, in terms of, of what programming is, is out there. We have a lot of work with barbershops and garden groups in the UK. So there are many different ways to engage men and boys, and there's no right answer. So if you see an opportunity where you have a, a group of boys or young men or older men that are congregating and uh, attention is there, definitely capitalize on that and use that as an entry point into talking about mental health and well-being. Never take that men's health hat off. Always be thinking about how to integrate it into your daily life. I see a lot there in what you just talked about, those kind of action steps that really we see in our making connections work as well. So many of mm -hmm. the so many of the groups are really doing those kinds of activities that center around where men were already gathering, boys were already gathering and doing things. And they've kind of built those out into some really interesting stuff, like a group of veterans that gets together in rural Connecticut to cook together after they've worked in, in their community garden and yeah. you know help each other and help the community out by doing that. Cody, I want to thank you so much for spending this time with us uh, today on this podcast. And I want to thank our audience for joining us for this episode of Moving Upstream. To learn more about today's show and about Prevention Institute's Making Connections initiative, visit our website at preventioninstitute.org. Making Connections is funded by the Movember Foundation. We'd love to hear your ideas and feedback about this podcast. Find us on Twitter. We're at PreventionInst. That's Prevention, I-N-S-T. Thank you.